So I'd like to welcome those of you that are here for the first time. I see some new faces, and I also see some folks that haven't been here for quite a while, and uh, welcome back. And to those of you who that have been coming regularly, your presence is appreciated too. So let me uh, begin by sharing with you, this is a letter that came to me a couple days ago, um, deep Zen-like meditation, at the push of a button, try it free. <laughs> Meditate like a Zen monk, at the push of a button, are your money back? <laughs> so anybody would like to borrow this and skip the rest of the classes? We <laughs> it's right here up front. What I wondered when I read that, at the push of a button, well, what happens, you know, if your computer breaks down and you're in a really bad mood from that, or if you're caught in a traffic jam, or, you know, this instant Zen-like meditation, if you're waiting for the results from a biopsy, or something that's really heavy, what then? Is there any push-of-a-button kind of remedy? It's kind of interesting to me in the last couple of decades, because meditations become so well integrated into this culture that we're getting all of it. I mean, there's just all these instant kind of descriptions of what can possibly happen. And I read the advertisements and something in me is, gets more and more, becomes the cynic. You know, I used to write the advertisements and now I'm... <laughs> that, you know, there's this, this sense that um, there's some magical quick thing that happens. And I've been doing this practice for, or practicing in some form yoga and meditation for mm, 25 years or so. And um, I wouldn't still do it if there wasn't a real something that I cherish about how it wakes me up and I think gets me kinder. But, you know, when these strong emotions arise, when for whatever reason we get insecure or angry, um, it's a real challenge. And, and, I, and I kind of get irritated when advertisements make it seem like you can create this kind of even keel in the midst of life. Um, I don't think that's even the goal. My sense is the reason we practice is to wake up our heart and mind, and that means going with whatever weather comes up and finding a way to relate to it that can begin to give us a sense of understanding about what's happening and a bit of compassion when we close down. So last week we talked about what's called the first foundation of mindfulness, the foundation of sensations, this embodied presence, which I tried to emphasize some in this meditation. Until we learn how to arrive and really feel a sense of here I am in this body, until we have a, a way of getting outside of the dreams, of, of the thoughts that are going on, we're not here. And that doesn't mean that making use of thoughts, having good thoughts isn't essential, it just means we need that capacity to not be caught inside them, at least some of the time. So the first part of meditation training is to learn how to use the breath or the body or some anchor and begin to realize, oh, I've been off in the dream, and come back. And really sense, okay, right this moment, and I ask you this, what is going on in this body? What does it feel like to be a body, to be alive this moment? For some of us, it's not so easy to drop in. Maybe it's because the body is uncomfortable or just there's something scary about letting go of our mental frame of reference. Do you know what I mean? And just kind of letting go into it. But that's the first foundation, is to learn to be mindful of what's happening in these bodies, the sensations, the breath. The next kind of layer of mindfulness is to know when it's particularly pleasant or unpleasant. And there's a really good reason for that. We spin off into reactivity as soon as it's very pleasant or unpleasant. If there's something painful in our body, it's like in an instant we're off judging it and being afraid of how long it's going to last and making all sorts of predictions and we're already moving our body before we've even noticed what's going on. 
So if we become awake to the quality of unpleasant, even name it, just go, okay, unpleasant, unpleasant, things slow down. We have a chance to actually pause and sense, okay, what's going on? Tension, tightness, burning, whatever it is, but there's more opportunity to respond and not react unconsciously. So that's the second layer of mindfulness. Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Are we off grasping after things because it's pleasant? Pleasant is wonderful if we can just stop and enjoy. That's not usually what happens. Usually we spin off on how long is this going to last? How do I recreate it when I need it? Do I really deserve this? Does pleasant get followed with punishment? And we're, a lot of us are wired like that to kind of anticipate around the corner that something's going to go wrong. And so we don't even get to relax and enjoy what's here to enjoy. The third foundation of mindfulness is what's called mind states, and it includes all the emotions and moods that go through us. And again, if we're not aware of them, they completely color our life experience. We move through life grasping after things and avoiding things without knowing what's going on. So there's a huge amount of waking up that goes on when we can become aware in a very precise way of what's going on in our emotional life. So that's where we'll spend some time tonight. And it's actually where a lot of the teachings have to keep circling around because emotions are a huge part of who we are. And until we find a way to become awake to them, become peaceful in their existence, relate with friendliness. My sense is that when I meet someone that's really happy, they're happy because they've found a way to relate with a deeply friendly kind of a quality of heart to what's going on, whatever it is. The word metta, or loving-kindness, one of the translations, is friendliness. So can we be unconditionally friendly towards what's happening this moment? I mean, it sounds so simple, but if there was no other... Uh, focus for spiritual practice, but that. How can I be friendly towards this moment, towards these particular currents of aches or pleasure, towards this mood, towards these thoughts, towards these humans? If that was our guiding theme, we'd have a quite wonderful world. So, in some ways, mindful attention to emotions is much harder than attention to sensations or thoughts because they're less distinct. We don't always know exactly what emotion is there and they don't have clear-cut beginnings or endings. And even when they're felt strongly, sometimes it's hard to distinguish between different emotions. Mostly, though, what makes emotions hard is that we're so identified with them. It's not just fear, fear. It's my fear, or else I'm the victim of fear. As soon as a strong weather system of emotion arises, there's a lot of self that comes springing into existence with it. You'll notice it. The stronger the emotion, the more there's this sense that it's happening to me or because of me. And if you can begin to notice that, of course, you're um, waking up. That's a great recognition. So that's the suffering of emotion, is that we begin to think it's us, that there's, that who's angry is me and it defines me, and that I'm bad for it. Some of you probably know Dan Goleman's book on emotional intelligence, and it really is one of the best-selling books internationally in the last decade because it goes at this problem of emotional suffering in a way that's kind of universal. The basic thesis of the book is if we can begin to recognize what emotions are going on 
and not live from inside them in such a reactive way, they can actually be guides for us. They can be a wise part of our life. And this is true in spiritual practice too, that if we can begin to let emotions be a place that we bring our attention in a wise way, they become the ground of waking up. It's not like we got rid of our anger and then we were spiritually um, luminescent. It's that anger arises and we have a way to relate with friendliness and clarity. Now the challenge, as most of us know, is that we're not only reactive personally, we're taught by the culture to react to emotions. Um, It's not considered to be proper or appropriate to exhibit a whole handful of emotions. We're kind of taught to cover them up and to suppress them and to not appear vulnerable, to not show our fear. One of my favorite little cartoons has a a picture of two snails side by side and they're at a bar talking. And one of them saying to the other, so she's persistent and she slowly coaxes me out of my shell and then pow, she screams, geez, without that nice shell, you look exactly like a slug. (laughs) This too I'll put up for an exhibit for anyone that wants to... (laughs) So here we are, we're, we're taught that to be intimate, we have to be vulnerable. We have to show what's real, okay? And, um, and yet, as so many of us know, it doesn't always attract people to show our fear, our anger, our shame. So we're caught in this kind of catch-22 of wanting to be real but afraid to be real. So we're taught to hide vulnerability or else, as most of us know, there's this habit of blaming when we feel bad about things internally to relieve the tension of that bad feeling, we judge. We target other people and we blame. And it's so easy for it to spiral out of control. We all know what it's like to be kind of in with the people that we're closest to and there's all these dances we have and all that has to happen is a slight kind of offense. Somebody says something and then it just spirals out and then we get locked in these kind of separate, in this separateness where our pride doesn't want us to own up or apologize and we play out this dance of kind of being annoyed or in some way um, just bitter and lose these precious moments that we could be together caught in resentments. So we push under and hide the stuff that's going on in us, or we blame, we throw it out on other people, and then we get really addicted to certain emotions. We get addicted to our anger, and we get addicted to excitement and drama, because it kind of lets us know we're alive, and if we're not feeling so present, or if we're getting caught in routines, The dramas are the area where we feel most excited sometimes. When I was in California teaching at Spirit Rock, I I heard about this article in a Marin, California newspaper. Many of you might have heard of Marin County, but the article tells it all. In this article, it describes the Colorado River toad and how it secretes when it's excited. And there's a short-acting psychedelic that if ingested by humans, gives a, you know, a short trip. And so um, in Marin County, there was a similar looking species that was located of these frogs. And, um, but they were poisonous. So this article was telling people, they were warning people not to lick the wrong species of frog. <laughs> and the headline said, lick toads at your own risk. <laughs> So sometimes these, these emotions and these drives and our impulses seem absolutely berserk to us. I mean, when we look from a distance, they can just seem like, isn't it crazy what humans get into? And it's really interesting when you look in an evolutionary way at them that every single emotion has a really good reason for being there. I mean, they're completely biologically wired and they're absolutely in service of survival, every single one of them anger, fear, shame, grief, all of them. 
They're supposed to be there. For hundreds of thousands of years, these affects have been activated. So there's a good reason for them. And it's hard to imagine how that would end up translating into people going around licking toads, but it does, you know. (laughs) It's interesting. When you think about it, the purpose of these emotions is twofold. The word emotion is motere, it means to move. And one purpose of emotions is it gets us to pay attention to things we need to pay attention to in our environment. Pay attention to what's pleasant, pay attention to what's unpleasant. The second part is it then moves us in a way so that we can go after what's pleasant and avoid what's unpleasant. So fear will rivet our attention on, let's say, a pain in our back. And the movement of fear will be to adjust our posture so we don't have to feel it any longer. And it'll happen very quickly. Or with interest, we might use interest will rivet our attention on what's pleasant. And eventually that can translate into reproduction. I mean, they all have very basic kind of um, survival functions. It's all about the four Fs. Feeding, flight, fighting, and reproduction. I saw this on a... (laughs) That was a poster I just saw. (laughs) Now, what's interesting is that, again, and I'm, I'm fascinated by the evolutionary perspective, and I'll tell you why, is that when I start learning more about it, I can't take my own emotional life so seriously. And that doesn't mean I'm not trying to be tender and friendly with what's difficult, but when I really get it that when I feel ashamed, this is like physical wiring, and it's to teach me to pay attention that I might be crossing a boundary that could then have me be rejected from my tribe, you know? There's, there's real reasons that these, these wirings are in place. Now, from a scientific and evolutionary perspective, whenever we encounter difficulty, that difficulty and the intensity of it is exactly what forces an adaptation. And it's true in spiritual life, too, that our problems, where we encounter difficult emotions, are the places where it's most possible to wake up and grow. It's, we can't, it's the places that, if we stay habitual, the suffering goes deeper. So we're kind of forced. It's kind of like this, you know, somebody's waving their arms, say, paying attention, pay attention, which is exactly what emotions do. And if we pay attention, and this is where the training and the practice comes, if we learn to pay attention wisely, there's a very deep transformation that happens. If we pay attention when there's anger, it's possible to go to the, the wisdom in anger, which is it's called discriminating wisdom. But that means we have to get out of our story about he said and she said and he did this wrong and it's this, this is the person to blame and drop under the story to where the energy lives and we can find that energy can guide us in a wise way. With desire, you know, desire can usually end up, if it's narrow, being grasping and greed. But there's a wisdom in it. And if we can bring a wise attention to desire, we drop into the place where it's really a longing for love and for freedom. But if we don't pay attention, we're just off and running, trying to grasp onto the next thing that'll give us pleasure. It's true with every emotion that arises. Each one is an opportunity to deepen our spiritual life and to wake us up, or it can be an energy that we get lost in, possessed by, and it creates more suffering. There's a saying in the Zen tradition that the lotus blossoms, the lotus is representing awakening, from a mud bank of passions. And I think that's very reassuring. (laughs) You know, if anybody here feels like you're a swamp of emotion sometimes, it's really the stuff of waking up. It's the place to pay attention. It's juicy. In fact, the teachers that I found have been most inspiring to me don't in any way talk about 
rising above the emotional life. Rather, they talk about its juiciness and how we can transform by paying attention in a wise way. The Tibetans put it this way, grant that I may be given appropriate difficulties and sufferings on this journey so that my heart may be truly awakened and my practice of liberation and universal compassion truly fulfilled. Grant that I may be given appropriate difficulties. Has anybody ever made that prayer? (laughs) There's a Chinese curse. May you be born in easy times. (laughs) Same idea, right? This is from a spiritual perspective, valuing whatever arises, really making use of it. So it becomes an interesting reflection, and it's, it's one you can do all the time, to look at your life right now and sense, okay, so where is it difficult? Where are there challenges? What's a really big challenge right now for you? And you can use these few moments, because we're going to come back to this and do an exercise, just to check in. What's hard to forgive in your life right now about yourself or about someone else or what circumstances are hard to accept? What are you wishing away? And if you take the whole sense of that that set of circumstances, those feelings, how might they serve to awaken you? If you could reframe it and rather than wish them away, genuinely bow to them. Okay, here's the teacher. Here's where the place of awakening can be. What might this be like? So you can come back to this, but the training, the mindfulness training, is really how to transform the energies we get lost in into energies that wake us up. And the challenge is as most of us know, and we'll use anger as an example because it's a pretty vivid one, we usually either get possessed by it, it becomes our world, it becomes very big, and it's like being in an airplane when you're inside a cloud, it's like the rest of the sky just doesn't exist any longer. When we're in anger, it's our world. So we're either possessed or we resist it, we push it under, and there might be some sense of tension in the body or irritability, but we've kind of in some way disconnected with the aliveness of it. We either push things away or we get possessed. Now when it's anger and we're living in the waves of it, it really feels like it's me. I am an angry being. And we're really inside a story. And the story has to do with in some way being hurt or mistreated, offended. And when we're pushing it away, there can be a real sense of numbness, of being distant from all of life and just tightness. So in our mindfulness training, the alternative is to invite the experience. If we sense it, if we sense the tendrils of anger, how to feel it in our bodies, what's it like? Name it, experience it, but not be lost in it. Now what makes it so hard? I mean, that's like a nice easy wrap, right? Okay, just open to the anger and let it be like a wave in the ocean of your being, you know? Let it come and let it go. (laughs) The reason it doesn't happen so easily is we have a deep, deep conditioning to feel that we're separate and that we're endangered. We go around with this identity and it's very much in thought form. This whole story of a separate self that's endangered. What that means is that we are identified as waves already. We're going around in a story that we are a set of waves, and when anger comes, it fits perfectly into our storyline. The Buddha described this as the body of fear, that if you believe you're a separate self, then there's automatically going to be fear. Because if you're separate, if there's self and there's other, that means that you're incomplete, 
you're vulnerable, people can reject you, things can be taken from you, and last but not least, you're going to die. You're mortal. So it's been described that this body of fear is this continual anxiety about our survival. And even when we're happy, it's there. There's always some angst that stops us from completely letting go into the moment. And it's a kind of dissatisfaction or concern about our survival. And the truth is that pain does happen. Bad things do happen on the level of our story. Okay? Now here's an example of, on the story level, called Bad Day on the Freeway. A California policeman pulled a car over and told the driver that because he had been wearing his seatbelt, he had just won $5,000 in the statewide safety competition. Starts out nicely, right? Okay. There's a reporter there with him, and they're both saying, okay, so congratulations, and what are you going to do with this $5,000? Well, the guy that's driving says, well, I guess I'm going to have to go and get me a driver's license. (laughs) Oh, don't listen to him, said the woman in the passenger seat. He's a smart aleck when he's drunk. (laughs) (laughs) This woke up the guy in the back seat who took one look at the cop and moaned, I knew we wouldn't get far in a stolen car. (laughs) At that moment, there was a knock from the trunk, and a voice said in Spanish, Are we over the border yet? So things go wrong according to how our story wants them to go. And this is our consensual story too. We get sick. Accidents happen. These bodies die, there are fires, economies crash. We're in a culture that actually takes these natural things, aging, sickness, and death, as kind of embarrassing. It's really interesting to me that to find that more and more I'm becoming aware of it that there's an embarrassment that goes along with being sick or that the fact that these bodies are getting older and it's very much a part of this culture I'm not sure how much it's a part of all cultures but there's a sense that we're taking it personally that the fact that things go wrong so to speak in our story we take very personally and it's not just that things are going wrong It's that I am wrong. And this is the fundamental suffering of a separate self. That if we feel separate, deep down we feel wrong. Doesn't mean that we might not have some ideas and beliefs about being successful and we might have our self-esteem story pretty solid, but deep down there's an anxiety and that anxiety can be translated to something's wrong with me here. Spiritual practice, all real genuine paths of healing have to do with beginning to bring this into awareness. To sense this body of fear, to sense the stories that we're living in and in that awareness of what's happening, not be so identified. I find the metaphor of an ocean and waves actually quite helpful there really is this sense that we can have as we begin to meditate that when experiences arise, when thoughts bubble up, when waves of anxiety come through, when feelings of peace come through, that they are waves because we know they're changing. They don't last. But there's some sense that each of those waves, the source of those waves, is this ocean of being and that's who we are. It's the most important question in spiritual life. Who are you? And if you're identified as a separate self, as a particular set of waves, there's going to be anxiety and suffering. So the Buddha described real freedom as sensing the waves come and go, but remembering again and again and again, who are you? That we're this ocean, that we include these waves, but we're not defined by them. Hemingway wrote, The world breaks everyone, and afterward many are strong at the broken places. 
we get strong because we realize we're not the brokenness. We get strong because we realize the vulnerability, the fear, the grief, the anger are waves in our being. And the strength comes from reconnecting with the vastness of who we are. For a long while on the path as we practice, there's a flipping back and forth that comes about. We begin to sit and walk and bring this more and more into our daily life. And there's more and more moments where we actually get that glimmer in a very deep intuitive way that who we are is connected with the rest of this universe. There's a sense of spaciousness and that really love and wakefulness is the essence of who we are. We get that. And then, just as frequently or more frequently for quite a while, we recongeal into this body of fear that's warily looking at other people, that doesn't trust ourselves and thinks something's going to go wrong any minute. And we go back and forth from sensing that openness to feeling like we're a set of waves that needs to fight or flight, or lick toads or something, you know? But we swing back and forth. And I... I think one of the beauties of meditation practice, and it's almost like the law of physics, is there's a kind of settling where the more moments that we realize who we really are, that we sense that kind of openness that can include what's going on, the deeper the faith goes. We become more (sighs) trusting of our deep identity, of that wholeness, then we are caught in a narrow sense of who we are. So let's look at some of the steps that helps to have us remember in that way, especially when the waves are difficult, when they're really ensnaring us. (laughs) Notice when I look at my watch, at least a quarter of the room looks at their watch. (laughs) I'm just trying to be mindful here. The first part of our training is to have that remembering to come back, to realize we're in the story. And that's probably the most powerful and ongoing training that we do. And that's, we can use the breath as an anchor or the whole body as an anchor or a mantra as an anchor, it doesn't matter. Whatever works. Whatever works to have more moments of recognizing, oh, I've been dreaming. And then coming back to discover what is true now. So that's the power of our concentration practice. And you'll find that we start pretty much every meditation trying to stabilize the attention and drop a little bit out of the storyline. It can be just following the out-breath. Some of you that have been coming for a while um, have probably explored the differences. When you follow the out-breath, it gives you a way of connecting with what's happening, but then a sense of openness. So it's a nice balance of open yet connected. If you need more of a steady anchor, you can follow the out-breath and the in-breath, and the out-breath and the in-breath. You can even note in, out, in, out as long as the noting keeps you connected with what's actually happening and doesn't become this kind of mechanical mantra. The idea is to be here, to not be lost in thoughts, to be here. So that's part one. Part two is, once we're here, to recognize what's going on. This is the emotional intelligence piece. So we come and arrive, and you can do it right now, and just check in and sense what is true. What's the mood of the moment? Now, for some people, the mood of the moment might not be distinct in an emotional way, in which case just feel the sensations that are true. There might be tiredness. There might be achiness. There might be peace. There might be happiness. Sensations, emotions. And just for this moment, name in your own mind what you're aware of.
In ancient culture, shamans learned that to name that which you feared was a practical way to begin to have power over it. This naming is a way of deepening our attention so we're not so caught, we're not so reactive. Now there's the trick to naming though, because naming like anything else can be used to push things away and try to control things by distancing. So when we name, name softly. Like let's say right now you're noticing some discomfort in your body. You might just scan through and see if that's so. And it might be a sense of pressure or heat or twisting. To name that, twisting, twisting, and let it be a soft kind of noting so that 95% of your attention is actually sensing what the experience is like. Noting fear, unpleasant, thinking about failure, shame, clenching, cold, whatever it is. We name softly and then check to see if that's what it really is. In other words, let the naming guide you more deeply and completely into what's true. The power of naming is it makes us more alert and more attentive to what's real. This is very, very evident in interpersonal relationships. In fact, to be intimate with our inner life or with each other, we have to be able to recognize what's going on. This is written by Robert Johnson. The night before their marriage, they held a ritual where they made their shadow vows. The groom said, I will give you an identity and make the world see you as an extension of myself. The bride replied, I will be compliant and sweet, but underneath I will have the real control. If anything goes wrong, I will take your money and your house. (laughs) They then drank champagne and laughed heartily at their foibles, knowing in the course of their marriage that these shadow figures would inevitably come out. They were ahead of the game because they had recognized the shadow and unmasked it. Wouldn't that be an interesting part of marriage, premarital counseling? Have people write out their shadow vows? I think I'll start doing that. (laughs) Okay, so there's coming into presence. There's arriving by using the breath or the body, but coming out of the dream. And then there's noticing, okay, what's happening? Naming it. Naming it can still be cognitive. The real healing and transformation is to feel fully what it's like in our bodies. To really let be what's there and experience it from the inside. Again, this means not being in the story, to drop out of the story. And you might have to do that again and again and again. You might notice anger, anger, and then go right back into the the actual drama in your brain. So it's coming back again to feel in the body what it's like. Sometimes it helps to simply inquire, okay, what's most asking for attention? What happens this moment? Just to close your eyes and say, what's most asking for attention? In my heart, my body, my emotional body? What most wants acceptance this moment? The power of inquiry is it again directs our attention back into the present moment and into what's true. Rumi writes, the cure for pain is in the pain. Good and bad are mixed. If you don't have both, you don't belong with us. Pleasant and unpleasant, that's a given. If you check inside and you find that, it's not a reflection on you in any way. It's not personal. So the question is, can we relate with a friendly presence? Let me just review for a moment. We check in, we feel what's there. If it's intense, the tendency is either to get possessed and take it very personally and feel very stuck inside it, being a victim, or to resist, to push it away, to kind of blank out, numb out, disconnect. And different temperaments seem to do one or the other a little more regularly. 
There's some people that numb out much more quickly. Others go around feeling like they're absolutely torn open and completely vulnerable and exposed all the time. Either way, in some way, we're reacting to the waves of the moment. If you tend to be a person that gets possessed, when anger comes, you're absolutely carried away. When grief comes, you feel like you're going to drown in the ocean of sorrows. When fear comes, it's terror. Then the noting can actually give a little space around it. You can name and also sense the awareness that's doing the naming. What's needed when there's possession is a sense of space and perspective. So you can name it, but also sense who's naming and the awareness that it's floating in. You can relax your body some. When something's difficult, allow it to float in something bigger. Remember the sky, remember space. Some of you know the story of Chogyam Trungpa when he brought out that white big pad of paper. This is so great. And he just drew a little kind of V on it. And he asked everybody, so what is this? And everybody responded, a bird, a bird, a bird. And I said, no, it's sky with a bird flying through. When you're possessed, to remember the sky, to remember the ocean, the bigger space, This is what I've called the wide-angle lens. If instead you're feeling like you're the kind of person that cuts off, that disconnects, that goes numb, that gets very habitual and caught in the story but does not feel things in your body, then that inquiry I described, what's really happening? What's really true? What's bothering me the most? What most wants attention? The purpose of the questioning is not cognitive. It's to direct our attention more deeply to the source. Okay? So when you ask yourself questions, don't go into thinking about answers. If you say, what really wants acceptance, feel into your body and sense what's living there. Whether we're opening the lens so there's more space, are we're focusing in and really sensing the actual sensations, the knot right at the center of the experience. Either way, the intent is presence. We need both for presence, both space and contact. When both qualities are there, when there's room for our experience, when there's room for the anger, for the fear, and we can connect with the waves and feel them, there's a natural compassion that arises. A natural compassion. We cannot really experience anything without being present to it. True presence requires that we be attentive to what's happening here and now. It is an offering of our awareness, our participation, our willingness. This is a basic and profound respect Respect's another expression of care. We pay attention because we care. And it's out of that caring that we create a space for whatever is arising to be seen, to unfold itself, to be released in some way. So much of what's difficult inside our own body and heart is a vulnerability that's just like a young child. That if you can imagine a scared young child needs to be invited to sit in our lap, to be held with that kind of quality of care and of kindness. It helps to say hello. I mentioned this in some other classes. If something's really difficult, really hard, you can assume that you're defended against it, and just saying hello is a respectful acknowledgement. It helps to say hello. It helps to sense that your intention is to be friendly to listen to what's there. Healing is establishing a relationship. That's what each of us is doing in our spiritual life. We're learning to relate in a friendly way with what's going on inside us, what's going on in each other. And that relating is characterized by this care, this listening, this openness. There's a story that um, 
got sent around by email before the holidays that I'd like to share with you. When I was quite young, my father had one of the first telephones in our neighborhood. I remember well the polished old case fastened to the wall, the shiny receiver hung on the side of the box. I was too little to reach the telephone, but used to listen with fascination when my mother used to talk to it. Then I discovered that somewhere inside the wonderful device lived an amazing person. Her name was Information Please, and there was nothing she did not know. Information Please could supply anybody's number in the correct time. My first personal experience with this genie in the bottle came one day while my mother was visiting a neighbor. Amusing myself at the tool bench in the basement, I whacked my finger with a hammer. The pain was terrible, but there didn't seem to be any reason in crying because there was no one home to give sympathy. I walked around the house sucking my throbbing finger, finally arriving at the stairway, the telephone. Quickly, I ran for the footstall in the parlor and dragged it to the landing. Climbing up, I unhooked the receiver in the parlor and held it to my ear. Information, please, I said into the mouthpiece just above my head. A click or two and a small, clear voice spoke into my ear. Information, I hurt my finger, I wailed into the phone. (laughs) The tears came readily enough now that I had an audience. Isn't your mother home, came the question. Nobody's home but me, I blubbered. Are you bleeding? No, I replied. I hit my finger with the hammer and it hurts. Can you open your icebox, she asked. I said I could. Then chip off a little piece of ice and hold it to your finger, said the voice. After that, I called information please for everything. (laughs) (laughs) I asked her for help with my geography, and she told me where Philadelphia was. She helped me with my math. She told me my pet chipmunk I had caught in the park just the day before would eat fruits and nuts. Then there was a time that Petey, our pet canary, died. I called information please and told her the sad story. She listened, then said the usual things grown-ups say to soothe a child, but I was unconsoled. I asked her, why is it that birds should sing so beautifully and bring joy to all families, only to end up as a heap of feathers on the bottom of a cage? She must have sensed my deep concern, for she said quietly, Paul, always remember that there are other worlds to sing in. Somehow I felt better. All this took place in a small town in the Pacific Northwest. When I was nine years old, we moved across the country to Boston. I missed my friend very much. Information Please belonged in that old wooden box back home, and somehow I never thought of trying the tall, shiny new phone that sat on the table in my hall. As I grew into my teens, the memories of these childhood conversations never really left me. Often in moments of doubt and perplexity, I would recall the serene sense of security I had then. I appreciated now how patient, understanding, and kind she was to have spent her time on a little boy. A few years later, on my way west to college, my plane touched down in Seattle. I had about a half an hour or so between planes. I spent 15 minutes or so on the phone with my sister, who lived there now, and without thinking what I was doing, I dialed my hometown operation, operator and said, Information, please. Miraculously, I heard the small, clear voice I knew so well. Information. I hadn't planned this, but I heard myself saying, Could you please tell me how to spell fix? There was a long pause. Then came the soft-spoken answer. I guess your finger must have healed by now. <laughs> I laughed. So it's really still you, I said. I wonder if you have any idea how much you meant to me during that time. I wonder, she said, if you know how much your calls meant to me. I've never had any children. I used to look forward to your calls. I told her how often I thought of her over the years, and I asked if I could call her again when I came back to visit my sister. Please do, she said. Ask for Sally. Three months later, I was back in Seattle. A different voice answered. Information? I asked for Sally. Are you a friend, she asked. Yes. A very old friend, I answered. I'm sorry to have to tell you this, she said. Sally has been working part-time the last few years because she was sick. She died five weeks ago. Before I could hang up, she said, Wait a minute, is your name Paul? Yes. Well, Sally left a message for you. She wrote it down in case you called. Let me read it to you. The note says, 
Tell him I still say there are other worlds to sing in. He'll know what I mean. I thanked her and hung up. I knew what Sally meant. The story ends by saying never underestimate the effect that others can have by listening to us. It's all about relationship. This whole waking up process is about how we listen to our inner life, how much we're willing to listen and understand and care for others. When we do, when we learn to hold that space for the emotions that come, the pain, the intensity, there's room. We find that we have that kind of habit of thinking it's going to be too much, but we really can be with our life. We can have that intimacy. And when we practice that with our inner life, we're naturally more there, more present for others. Present enough to make that kind of a difference where another being can feel held and nourished. I'll end with Rumi. When water gets caught in habitual whirlpools, dig a way out through the bottom to the ocean. There's a secret medicine given only to those who hurt so hard they can't hope. The hopers would feel slighted if they knew. Look as long as you can at the friend you love no matter whether that friend is moving away from you or coming back to you. So let's sit for a few moments together, if you will. If you have been sitting very still, stretch your legs and then come back and we'll do a short meditation to kind of complete what we started a bit earlier. If you identified a place in your life that could offer some gold that is both challenging and a place for waking up, you can bring that to mind. If not, you can use whatever your present experience is right now. And it doesn't matter what that experience is because whatever's happening can wake us up, can wake up these hearts. Now, if you have an experience from your life where it feels challenging, take some moments to sense what's most difficult about it. What is it about this situation that's hard to accept? what's hard to forgive or include so that you want it different. And sense what's difficult. You might, if you can, sense how it feels in your body by bringing those circumstances to mind in a vivid way, maybe seeing who else is involved, can sense it like a movie and stop at the frame that's most challenging. What's so difficult about this? What's most asking for attention in your body, in your heart, for acceptance? See if you can soften your belly and soften and breathe in and as you breathe in, just let the in-breath touch what's most difficult. So there's an honest connecting with it. And just breathe out naturally. So with each in-breath, it's as if you're inviting that child on your lap. You're willingly being present to sense the pain, to hear the hurt, to feel what's true. 
each in-breath inviting what's difficult by feeling it fully takes a certain commitment and courage to just be here and breathe in and directly experience what's true. And if you feel blocked or numb, then to let that be what you breathe in, what you make room for. There's no wrong experience. Just let the intention of the in-breath be to honestly connect with what's there. As you breathe out, you can sense the space that this is all happening in. Breathing in, feeling what's vulnerable, what's difficult. Right in the body, in your stomach, your chest, your throat, where it's strong. Breathing out and offering a sense of compassion, sensing the open space of compassion that you breathe out into. So you can use the breath to be the holder and the held, to feel both the vulnerability and also be the awareness that's inviting this vulnerable one to sit in your lap that's offering your blessing, your prayer. And opening the awareness to sense other beings that might struggle or feel just as you feel, might be challenged in a similar way, or might feel disconnected or numb. So that as you breathe in now, you're breathing in for all the beings everywhere that might suffer, have problems. Again, it takes a certain courage to breathe in and willingly breathe in for the vulnerability of others. And to breathe out and offer your prayer, your care, your wish for freedom from suffering. You can sense yourself sitting in a room with a large number of people all honestly relating to what's happening, each with their vulnerability, their fears, so that you breathe in for all of us to honestly connect with what's real and that you breathe out your prayer, your care. Imagine the beings in this room. When water gets caught in habitual whirlpools, dig a way out through the bottom to the ocean. There is a secret medicine given only to those who hurt so hard they can't hope. The hopers would feel slighted if they knew. Look as long as you can at the friend you love, no matter whether that friend is moving away from you or coming back toward you. Stay with what's true, breathing in, connecting, breathing out, offering your care.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.